for those that uh, do not know who I am and who's this uh, strange guy up here at front, uh, my name is Stan Smith. My wife Linda is with me. Uh, we have just uh, completed uh, 30 plus years of working for the BRN. I retired back in March, and uh, we're delighted to have a chance to uh, worship and be a part of the service day at Living Legacy. Uh, walking in this place, I have lots of memories from back in First Baptist Church days as uh, I helped work on this building. And uh, the, the story is, uh, which has some degree of truth to it, I guess, is the, the Sunday uh, before the fire, which was early Monday morning, uh, I had been working, I had preached here that day, uh, both morning and evening. And so I was accused of leaving some fire and brimstone embers behind uh, and, and got, got blamed. In fact, that year, the, the church uh, did a, a Christmas party and invited me to come and gave me a fire extinguisher as a Christmas gift. So but lots, of, lots of great memories of, of not only this place and the, and the First Baptist Church, but also of living legacy in your, your early days. I was sharing in Sunday school that the, I think the last time I spoke here on a Sunday morning, you were meeting at what was the old high school. And uh, uh, which was, I guess, a community center at the time. And, and much of the sermon was interrupted or at least uh, lost in the noise of the basketball game that had started in the room next to where we were meeting for worship. So uh, if you don't remember me having ever been here before, that, you have good reason. I lost out to a basketball game in the middle of the sermon. But delighted, delighted to be here today. Um, you know, we found that the most, the most vulnerable time in the life of a church is when it's between pastors. Uh, even though the church is more than just the pastor, and even though you are still a church, even without a, a pastor, uh, that role is so critical to the growth and the health and the well-being of the congregation that when there is that, that gap between, churches are really vulnerable. And, and as I thought and prayed about uh, sharing with you today, I, I was drawn to think what happens in the life of the body when the leader leaves. And there's all kinds of studies that have been done, but, but the one that is most interesting to me is to look at how the disciples responded when Jesus left. And so this morning, what I want us to look at uh, and, and you have a little outline in the bulletin. You'll see it on the screen. And thank you, Jackie, for making sense out of all the chaos that I sent her late Friday in the wrong format. And she redid it all. And thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I apologize for that curveball on Friday afternoon. Um, now, now, what we're going to look at is going to make you uncomfortable. It may even make you upset. It, it's going to challenge and, and stretch you. Uh, what I want to ask you to do is to, to let it be a mirror for you. Some of the reflections may connect with where you are. Some may not. You may also think of others for whom some of these images, reflections may, may, uh, may apply in, in their lives. But I want you to kind of lean in and hang in because at the end, I do want to bring us to a point, uh, I hope, of of hope and encouragement for the days ahead. It's a serious time in the life of living legacy. And I'm encouraged to know that the Lord anticipated times like this. 
And we can even look at how his closest followers responded in the midst of him announcing and then ultimately leaving the scene. Okay? So when the leader leaves. We're going to talk through, I don't know, seven or eight or nine. I know that's scary because you're used to three points. But let me assure you, these are not long points. They're, they're short points. But, but each of these illustrate one of the reactions or responses of the disciples to the news that Jesus was leaving. So the first one uh, is a response of being impulsive. Uh, how did the disciples react? One of the reactions was being impulsive. I'm sure none of you are ever impulsive. Uh, I'm, that was a joke. I wasn't serious there. Um, look, look at what happened with Peter. Now, you know the scene. They've gone. You know, they've had their prayer time. They've had the Last Supper. They've gone now, and, and uh, they've gone to the, to the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, and, uh, and, and Jesus has had his prayer time, and now they've gathered back together. And uh, Judas and the, 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 the guards come. And Jesus turns to Judas and says, Friend, why have you come? Well, he knew why, why he'd come. And in that moment, they came up and they took hold of Jesus to arrest him. And, and Peter, it says, and that one of those with Jesus reached out his hand. It was Peter. Peter grabbed a sword and chopped the guy's ear off. One of the guys that came to arrest Jesus. Peter meant well. His heart was right. It was an impulsive response to the fact that he was seeing his leader being arrested and taken away and did not know if he would ever see him again. You know, we can sometimes do the craziest stuff when we're under stress or in the midst of a crisis. Um, I remember uh, one time uh, I was uh, visiting with a, uh, a family, the, the wife whose husband had just died just in the brief time that, that I had been there. And, and I, I turned to her and asked her, what could, could, what could we do? What could I do to, to help serve her in that moment, the moment that her husband had just passed away? And she asked me to go pick up the vacuum cleaner that was at the repair shop. Now, I thought that was an odd request, but in that moment, with all the catalog of things going on in her mind, the one unattended thing was this vacuum cleaner that she needed to clean the house because all the family was going to be coming. We could do some of the, some of the, the funniest things in the midst of crisis and stress. Peter thought he was doing a good thing. But he did not understand how the plan of God would unfold. So in that, in that limited perspective that Peter had, he responded impulsively, and he, he really missed what God was about. And so in that impulsive moment, he whips out his sword and chops a guy's ear off. One of the responses to the 12, well, to the 12 who were the closest people around Jesus, in the moment when they became aware that he was leaving was an impulsive response. He meant well, but he did not understand the plan and the purposes of God. A second response we find with, with Judas. Uh, in Matthew 26, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him 
from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. Judas felt betrayed. Judas felt that, that Jesus was not following the game plan that Judas had in his mind for him to follow. There was this kiss on the outside, but on the inside was, was, was anger and a sense of, of betrayal. You see, Judas believed that, that Jesus should take on a different kind of, of leader model than what he was bringing. He thought that Jesus should be this, this military ruler who would come in and kick the Romans out and set the people of Israel free again. They, they were looking for a, a military kind of King David kind of guy. Jesus was not that. Here, here Jesus was literally getting ready to be killed on a cross. Judas felt betrayed. You know, in the midst of, of churches in transition, folks, <clears throat> folks can feel those same kind of emotions. There can be a, that impulsive kind of reaction. There can be that sense of, of betrayal. This was not my game plan. How dare you mess up my game plan? Another reaction we find in Matthew 26, and this one, this one absolutely floors me, uh, because right at, right at the at the midst of, of kind of rehearsing what was happening to Jesus and the fact that it was fulfilling all the prophetic scriptures, in Matthew 26 it said, "But all this has happened so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled." Now think about that. That they've just they've just cataloged all of these things that took place in the the. the you know, the betrayal and the arrest and, and, the, and the, 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 all of this stuff was taking place in Jesus' life. And, and Matthew says, all of this happened to fulfill prophecy. It's like, this, we knew about this a long time ago. And, and we look at Jesus and everything that Scripture promised. Jesus is fulfilling. And what's the response of the disciples? Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. That, that, in that in that moment, one of the natural reactions to what was taking place in front of them was to flee, was to run away, was to, to separate themselves from what they've been a part of for all those years. Now, thankfully, most of them came back, but in that moment, their response was to flee. In most churches that go through a time of transition, there are those who choose to separate themselves from the body for a variety of reasons. It's not good. It's not bad. It happened to Jesus' disciples. How can we expect it to be different among us? It is a way that people respond to what happens when a leader leaves the congregation. They fled out of hurt, out of confusion, out of not knowing what's going on, just, just one more stressor in their life and they choose to step out and no longer be part of the body. Next reaction. Uh, this is one that we, we, we've studied a lot about. You know, when Peter <clears throat> says, meanwhile, Peter was following him at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. So you see the scene. Jesus has been arrested, and he's kind of migrating from office to office, place to place. Peter is following at a distance. He's not up close. 
he's following at a distance. He went in, he was sitting with the temple police to see the outcome. So here he is, he's followed the the crowd that has Jesus, they've gone to the high priest's house, he's kind of hanging out, kind of a little bit removed, he wants to see what's going to happen. Hanging out at a distance, just to see what's going to happen next. Not really out, but not necessarily really in. Kind of waiting to see. Many, many times I'll encounter uh, folks in churches that will say, well, I want to see who the new pastor is going to be, and then I'll make some decisions. You know? And, I mean, we can kind of rationalize that, and I'll talk a bit about, about that in just a moment. But this sense of being kind of not completely out, but not quite in, is a reaction the disciples experienced, and is a normal human reaction when there's transition in the life of the church. Again, let me remind you that I asked at the beginning that you would kind of let these become mirrors and see if you see any of you reflected in that. We'll talk about what to do with that in just a moment. But but look at these responses. And, And remember, these were the responses of the 12 closest people to Jesus. So if we observe others who take on some of these, Woe be unto us if we're harsh or judgmental about their responses. Because these were the people that Jesus built his church upon. Distance. The the next one. Uh, Again, we look at Peter. And and do you notice that that many of these reactions were by the same people? It was Peter who was at a distance. It was Peter that was impulsive. So, so even within the individuals, there can be a variety of, of responses across the spectrum of how to respond to the fact that the leader left. And here we have another one. This is the one that is perhaps most, uh, most profound and impactful. It's a, it's a longer text, but, but I, want to read, I want to read through all of that, and you can follow along in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 69. It's also on the screen. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, A servant approached him, and she said, You're with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Uh, Verse 71, When he'd gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, This man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. He, He cussed about it. I don't even know the man, Peter said. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, You certainly are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. We're going to look at, a, at another reaction in this same text with Peter, but first I want you to notice that when the spotlight shifted to him, when, when commitment was called for, when, when identification with the, the purposes that Jesus was about, when all of that came to be focused on Peter, he wilted. He wilted. Under the scrutiny and the strain of needing to, to stand alongside Jesus, he, he wilted. But isn't it ironic that this same guy became the leader later? And one of the, one of the things that I hope we get, a, we get a handle on here is that in spite of 
all these reactions and we may feel almost a sense of judgment at some of these. In spite of all of that, this was the core group that founded the church on the day of Pentecost, with the exception, of course, of, of Judas. So here's, here's Peter, and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus has been arrested. He's inside the, you know, the, the chief priest's house and going through all that interrogation, and that spotlight falls on him. And he denies he even knows who Jesus is. That, that, that call to commitment, that call to kind of step it up, wilted, withered inside. In that same passage, we, we see the next emotion, or the next reaction, which was deep emotion. Notice at the end of verse 75, said that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. You know, in that moment, I think all of this stuff began to flood in on Peter. He remembered what Jesus said. He remembered the expectations that Christ had for him. And he felt like he was a failure. He, he, I believe he also felt that he was somewhat responsible for what was happening to Jesus. If he'd just been stronger, if he just you know, loved him more or, 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 or served him better, you know, I let him down. In most churches that I've worked with through the years, there are some who believe that if they had worked harder, been more faithful, gave more, loved more, showed up more, the pastor wouldn't have left. That, that somehow the church or, or me, you know, is responsible for the leader leaving. Now, we know that that was not the case here. Jesus was fulfilling the purposes of God to redeem mankind. Yes, Peter did fail. Yes, he didn't do the things that Jesus wanted him to do. But that did not change the, the, the call of God upon Peter's life. And I would say the same about a, the pastor, Larry, who left here. He was being obedient to what he understood to be the call of God on his life. But our reaction can be just like Peter's reaction. I let him down. I'm responsible. It's all my fault. And it can be that deep, deep sense of, of emotion turmoil in our heart. Uh, one more, uh, and then we get to a really good one, okay? One more. Uh, the next reaction, uh, and this would be a fill-in-the-blank thing. I forgot to, are you finding those as we go along? Okay, I should have called that. Uh, return to past life. Uh, <laughs> here, here again, bless Peter's heart. I don't think there was ever a thought that crossed his mind that didn't come out his mouth. And, but aren't you grateful? Because hold that mirror up and I see me in a lot of that stuff. I, I would hope that you would see, you might see yourself in some of that. So here, here we are. Jesus has died. You know, horrible, terrible death on the cross. He's been, he's been buried. He promised to rise in three days. So what does Peter do? I'm going fishing. I mean, can you imagine? At, at this, this crux of, of God's redemptive history, and Peter decides to go back to do what he did before. He was a fisherman. One of the reactions when a leader leaves can be that we can gravitate back to what we used to do. I uh, uh, was serving in a church, this was many years ago, and, and one of the key leaders in the church, he had been the worship leader and a deacon and a variety of things, uh, he just didn't know how to navigate all that was going on in his, in his heart with the, the loss of their pastor. And so uh, 
he just decided all of a sudden that he wasn't coming to church anymore. So he and his wife on Sunday morning would ride their Harleys uh, across central Pennsylvania and just enjoy being together as husband and wife. That was kind of how he justified it. They just wanted some time together. He just disappeared. He, you know, uh, we had no one in place to, to cover the roles that he had, and uh, he'd been a very, very significant leader in the life of the church. But in reaction to what had happened, he just chose to go back to what he did before, what he did before he was even a believer, which was ride his Harley on Sunday morning and go find country fairs and flea markets and little country cafes and diners for he and his wife to go out and enjoy being together. He went fishing, just like Peter. Now, the good news is, he did get him to come back. <laughs> he did get off the road. But, but often what happens in the midst of, of, of a transition, especially if you've not been through a transition before, is we can choose to reinvest our time and energy in something else. We can choose to invest in, in, in things unrelated to the church anymore. That was what Peter did. Uh, he returned to what he'd been doing before. Now, let me move to, to one more, and then we're going to move to some applications. But this, this last one, I think, is really, really significant. I, I, want, you to, I want you to pay uh, close attention to this one. Because in, in, this, in this case, the reaction was of those who stayed close, stayed close. Uh, listen to this passage in John, John 19, 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and notice, standing by the cross of Jesus, not at a distance, up close, were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, referring to John, standing there, close to the cross, he said to his mother, Woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now think about that. Some of what we have recorded about those last days, those last hours in Jesus' life, we have only because John stayed close. He, he, he had some special understandings of what Jesus was about. I mean, can you imagine? Here our Savior's on the cross. He's, he's dying on the cross. And Jesus turns to John and says, John, I want you to take care of my mother. And mother, I want you to treat John just like he was your son. Man, what if John hadn't shown up? What if John hadn't stayed close? What he would have missed, this, this assignment, this understanding of the work of, of Jesus and what he wanted to, to, to have happen through the resurrection that was coming, we, he would have missed that. And, and certainly the Holy Spirit could have you know, inspired the writers to kind of fill in the blanks. But John was there. He wrote down what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced. And then, and then look at the, uh, Mary and Mary Magdalene. On, on, on Easter morning, on, on Resurrection Sunday, they showed up at the, at, at the grave to, to anoint the body and do the stuff that they did in that time to, to care for, for someone who had died. Just, they were the first ones to see the risen Lord. Now why? 
because they stayed close. Because they, they, they continued to lean in to the activity of God as they understood it. And because of that, they were able to experience and enjoy some activity with Jesus Christ that no one else got to experience. Wow. What if they hadn't shown up? What if they hadn't stayed close? What if they'd cho chosen to go fishing <laughs> or, or go back to whatever they did before or to stay at a distance to see how this thing turns out? But no, they chose to stay close. Now, eventually, the rest of the disciples, they got in on the good news as well. But at that moment, at that moment, it was a couple women who showed up and stayed close that first saw the resurrected Lord, heard his first words, and received the command, go tell everybody else that I'm alive. Wow. All because their reaction to the leader being gone was to stay close and engaged in what he'd asked them to be doing. So, what were they to do? Okay, now that they all know that Jesus is resurrected, what are they to do? Well, a, a couple things. One is, <clears throat> even as Jesus prepared to ascend, he, he clarified for them that he was leaving. That their, their leader in, in physical, earthly form was going to be gone. Living legacy, your pastor has gone. He's followed a calling to, to engage in ministry in another place. Living Legacy does not have the pastor role filled at this time. That's the reality. The leader is gone. Part of the journey is coming to grips with reality. The leader is gone. The church isn't gone. But the leader, the leader is gone. The pastor leader is gone. The second thing that Jesus said to them was that you are my witnesses. Remember in Acts he said, you receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That there was a, a task Jesus gave to them, which was to be witnesses. They were to, to tell the story of God's activity. They were to tell what God was doing. They were to tell who Jesus was and why he came and what the message of the good news was all about. They had a task. They were to be witnesses. Now this third piece is the one that really threw them a curveball. They were okay with the first two, probably. But this third one really threw them a curveball because Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem. They were to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, go to Jerusalem because they were just outside the city. Now, now <laughs> think about this. What did Jerusalem represent? What had just happened to Jesus in Jerusalem? He was killed, crucified. And, and for all they knew, the, the authorities were looking for all of those who were followers of Jesus. So to go back to Jerusalem was a high risk for them. They were being asked to go back to the place where they felt their lives were at risk, that they were in danger of experiencing the same uh, harsh judgment of the authorities that Jesus had experienced. It was a place of great discomfort. I mean, think about Peter. <laughs> after denying Jesus every time, oh no, what if I run into one of those women again? You know, after what I just said and, and, and did about Jesus. You know, 
or, or these, these zealots who were, who were really interested in Jesus having been a military ruler and they, they bump into their old buddies that were kind of doing some guerrilla warfare against the Roman authorities. I mean, this was, was not a place of going to a place of comfort. It was a place of risk. It was a place of danger. It was a place of discomfort. And it was a place of personal failure for every one of those disciples. Every one of them. We know Peter denied Jesus. The others left town. They literally fled. And now they're, they're dealing with the reality that everything Jesus said is coming true. He, he was dead and he was buried, but now he's alive. He's the Messiah. Uh, he, he's the Son of God. He's, he's bringing the truth of God. And, we, and he said, he told us all of this stuff and we missed it and, and we failed. And here Jesus is commanding them to go back to the place, to stay in the place of the greatest risk, the greatest discomfort, and the place of their failure. Wow. Not, a, not an easy assignment. And then to cap it off, he tells them to wait. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? Wait. Um, I, even though I'm retired, I still hate that word. If I can hate that, you know, anything, but, but to wait. He, he told them to wait in Jerusalem. And he told them to wait together united together. He told them to wait in worship, to wait in prayer. And what were they waiting for? They were waiting for God to fulfill his promise, to continue to reveal his plan and his activity for his kingdom purposes in the world. And because they waited, they experienced the next step of God's revelation to his people. Because they waited, now, why? Why were they waiting? Very, very simple. He wanted them to be together, united in, in prayer and worship. He wanted them to be gathered together so that he could reveal his next step to them. He could reveal to them uh, the, the, the next level, if you will, of how he wanted to carry out his kingdom purposes. Their faithfulness, their witness and waiting and going to... Their faithfulness led the way for Pentecost to come. And at Pentecost, they, they moved from being this small group of discouraged, frightened Galileans to, to a group that on that one day they baptized 3,000. That was just the men. I didn't count the, the women and any maybe older children that were involved. But, but the result was because of their waiting and praying and being united, Pentecost came. And, and now God had given his presence and his power in the lives of the followers of Jesus so that Jesus was with them, in them, on a day-to-day -day basis. And they had the, the power of God, the capacity to call upon God, to, to do miracles and other things in the, that we read about in the book of Acts. All of that took place because they waited together in prayer and worship in Jerusalem. Now, could God have done it without that? Well, I mean, God's God. But, but these 12 who had this variety of reactions to Jesus leaving them, who had, who had failed and, and all this stuff, but because they chose to be witnesses, to stay in Jerusalem and to wait, 
they were able to step into the very stream of God's next step for them in life and ministry. Pentecost transformed the purposes of God through Jesus Christ in the world. The church was really birthed at that moment. And, and the gospel moved in an aggressive way outside of just the Jewish community. And the, the, the daily abiding presence of God in the hearts and lives of the disciples took place because of the infilling of his spirit into their life. So let me, let me transition this now to talk about us today. So what, of us, what about us here today? What are some, some takeaways? One is, and I've already said this, your pastoral leader is gone. Uh, we understand that. But another part about this is that we who remain are still witnesses of the activity of God here. Let me say again that just because a pastor is, is no longer here, and even though that role is important in the life of the church, the church doesn't cease being the church. The church doesn't hit the pause button and wait for the next pastor to kind of come and hit the, the play button again. No, the church is still to be about sharing the work of God, the activity of God in each of our lives in our community. The, the role of being a witness of the activity of God here continues on. Now, <clears throat> we weren't asked to leave Hershey or Derry Township or, uh, or the surrounding, uh, to go back to Jerusalem. We're, we're here, but I think there's a clear parallel. Because going to Jerusalem was that place of discomfort, risk. You know, one of the things that is, that is key in the life of a church in the midst of transition is that you'll be, you'll be called upon to assume leadership roles you never took on before, right? Many of you are doing things that you never had to do before. Now, maybe we should have been doing it, but you never had to do it before. Uh, I shared this with uh, the search committee and trying to illustrate a point, but there was a, a church I was working with and, and I was meeting with this uh, transition group and a guy came in uh, to our meeting room and said, hey, the, the bathrooms are, are out of toilet paper. Where's the toilet paper? Simple request. No one in the room, all of the leaders, no one knew where the toilet paper was. And so they hit upon the bright idea to call the previous pastor. And so in the meeting, they grabbed a cell phone, called the previous pastor and said, Pastor, we can't find the toilet paper. Where did you keep it? And he told them where it was. Now, I mean, that's a funny story, but it's tragically a true story. That, that the body is now being called upon to perhaps take on some leadership roles that you did not. Maybe you should have, but without a pastor, it, it gets, you know, well, he's here and he's in the office and, he can take care of where their toilet paper goes. There's some leadership roles that we assume that we have to take on. Also, and by the way, that is a true story. That's not just a preacher story. That's a, that's a, that's a true story. I can, uh, I can tell you the, the place and the pastor's name, uh, but I won't do that. Not fair to him or to that church. And by the way, they're doing well now with a new pastor, and, and so they survived that little blip along the way. But, but something else that happens in the life of the church is, is your process of decision-making gets shifted a bit because you don't have the pastor in place, and so decision-making becomes a bit more of the body or of a, a group of leaders in the life of the church. And so your, 
you're having to, to learn how do we, how do we make decisions as a, as a family when we've never really been down this road before. You're learning how to make decisions together as the body of Christ. Something else that, that, that you find, and it really shows up in, in worship, not so much from, from what Rachel and the worship team are doing, but happens with whoever's standing here, is things are different now. Style is different. Uh, personalities are different. And we can find ourselves living at the frayed edges at times. I remember one church that I went to, to serve. It was the funniest thing. The, the previous pastor had been a really good musician, played the guitar and sang. He was part of the praise team. And so the first question was, when are you going to bring your guitar? And you don't want me singing. That is not a good day. It is, it is, you know, it is joyful and it is noise, but it is not, you don't want that out, you know, public. And I don't play the guitar, although I'd like to play the guitar. So, and I remember at the end of the, at the, end of the service, and I, I went out to stand at the back where I would normally stand, and one of the teenagers came up and said, oh, no, no, you're supposed to stand over here. So there was a spot in mind that everyone had for where they would find the pastor at the end of the service. And because I wasn't in that spot, they were somewhat disoriented about how to get out of the building, I guess. I, I, you know. uh, now, I did move to that spot for a while, and then I migrated over to where I wanted to stand. But, but there's just a lot of simple little things that, that are just not exactly the way they were, and we can feel a bit frayed on the edges. You know, why don't you do this, or why don't you do that? Or, you know, or, and it's just it's the reality of being in the midst of transition. Let me also say that something else that happens in this midst of, 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 uh, of you know, kind of the, the being in the place of risk and discomfort is you will get tired. You'll get tired. Let me just say that again. You'll, you'll get tired. And it's not for a lack of faith. It's not for a lack of commitment. It's not for a lack of, of joy in serving the Lord. But there's a, a, a load that the body is carrying that you did not carry before. Now, maybe you should have carried some of that. I mean, that's another discussion. But, but in this moment, there are things that you're being called upon to carry that you didn't carry before. Those that are in leadership roles, your, your deacons and other leaders, are stepping into things with pastoral care and some of the shepherding roles that maybe they didn't carry as much before because you had a pastor that was here full-time and was accessible. But you'll get tired. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be harsh against someone who may get tired before you get tired. You know, give each other some slack and a break because the transition time is a time in which all of the body are in the midst of, of engaging with things that pushes them outside their comfort zone. One other, one other point, and then I'll close. He also told them to wait. <laughs> uh, you know, one of, the, one of the most challenging tasks in the life of a church at this point is the pastor search committee. Because I guarantee every week someone wants to know, do you have a pastor yet? It's been a week. Why don't we have another pastor yet? Well, it's been a month. It's been three months. You know, aren't you guys doing your job? Maybe we need to get another committee because you ought to have someone here by now. You know, part of the waiting is, is, is not only just finding who that candidate is, but it's also letting God do in our midst what he wants to do to prepare us. The, the, the journeying together, the, the, the fighting temptation to kind of jump this way or that way too soon 
It's the experience of praying and worshiping together. It's, the, it's, it's deepening our faith to believe that God will keep His promises to His people. And we can grow impatient. It's a human nature. It's a natural kind of a thing. And, and, and we can assume that the only goal of the transition is to get a new guy in the pulpit. But let me say to you that often the most critical part of a transition time is, is what happens in the body in the midst of the transition. I remember uh, one, in one church, uh, the search committee defined it this way. They said, right after the pastor left, we were looking for a pastor here. What they meant was they were looking for someone just like the guy that he just, just left. You know? uh, and, and they went through this, this season of, of transition. And in the midst of that transition, they began to get a picture, not of what was, but what could be. Not not any kind of negative valuing of who was the pastor, but the situation had changed now. There, there were some people that had come in the, in the church. There were the there's lots of things that had changed. And so instead of just looking here, they, they realized, you know, we need to call someone that's here because our situation is different now. Again, it's not a negative about the past. It's focusing on the future, what we need here. All of that happens because people wait in worship, in prayer, in believing that God will keep His promises, things you learn about each other together. All of that is a possibility because we listen to these same things Jesus said to His disciples. That they were to wait. They were to be witnesses of what God is doing. Uh, they were to allow themselves to be put in places of great discomfort. And they were to wait. United, together, in prayer, believing that God will keep His promise. So here's, here's the deal today. The, the, the focus of, of what, I, what I felt led to share with you was, was kind of a, a shepherding word about how to navigate transition. And, and to me, the, the best way to get some handles on that is to see how those that were closest to Jesus navigated that transition. And I think they provided a good backdrop. But then the, the takeaway, what do we do with this, is very, is very, very clear. Recognize that we're going to be in places of discomfort, and that's just the way it is. It's nobody's fault. There's no one to blame or point a finger at. It's part of that <clears throat> maturing process as a congregation to move from being here to being here. Uh, it's a place where, where we're called upon to, to be even more united, or focused in prayer and worship, where there's, a, where there's an anticipation that, that God is present as we're together, and that presence encourages each of us and, and allows us to, to, to have the kind of imprint upon our community unlike we've ever experienced before, and then God brings in the right leader at the right time for the next step in the life of a living legacy. Is that, is that connecting with that? Does that make sense? So here's what I want us to do. I want to ask Rachel to come and, and she'll play kind of some, some music in the back, backdrop. What I want to invite you to do is we talk through these pictures of, 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 of being impulsive or being angry or being you know, distant, you know, all those, those reactions that the disciples had. And, and as we walk through those, you may have found yourself say, wow, that's right where I am. That's right where I am. We want to take, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to stay seated, 
head's kind of bowed, reflective, and just ask the Lord to kind of inventory where you are. And if you need to come and pray here at the front, you're certainly welcome to come and pray. I'd be glad to, to pray with you. I'm sure the deacons would be glad to, to assist as well, John and Scott. But this is the time for us to just kind of inventory. Where are we in this journey of transition to the life of living legacy? And are there some pieces in this journey that I just need to work on with the Lord because it's, it's preventing me from being where he wants me to be for the next step? Now maybe you, you want to pray for the search committee or for the church body, but this is the time just to reflect, just privately, quietly. Um, you're certainly welcome to come as kind of an act of faith to the altar here to pray or if you want to talk with me. And we certainly would want to invite those that have an interest in knowing more about being a part of Living Legacy to let us know and we'll connect you with uh, some of the membership classes that are coming up.